So I'd love to open with prayer and then dive into our text today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to you for your word, for its clarity, for the way that it destroys us and puts us back together. Lord, by your Holy Spirit, I pray this morning, Lord, that this congregation and my heart and all of our hearts would be fertile soil for your word to take deep root and result in transformation. We pray in Jesus' good and mighty name. Amen. So our passage this morning, 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19, again, Peter talking about suffering, and this morning particularly the idea of rejoicing or taking great joy in suffering. So we're going to look at what it means to worship Jesus and rejoice as we suffer, and suffer particularly for him, to be prepared to suffer for and like Jesus suffered, so to suffer for his sake. It's not just general suffering, but particular for being a Christian and to suffer like Jesus suffered. And so we're going to look at how did Jesus suffer when he was on the earth? What did that look like for him? What was the nature and the manner of his suffering? And I think just through this whole, this whole series in First Peter, I found myself, and I think many of us, find it in some ways hard to relate to this kind of suffering that is brought up over and over again, because we just don't suffer that much. I mean, we're a, we're a relatively affluent congregation and an affluent part of the city, and our lives really aren't hard in many, many ways, and so we just, we have it really good. I mean, we just, we show up and we look nice and it's clean and nobody is, you know, trying to keep us from coming together and we have our lattes and our coffees and it's just nice and it's Christmassy and it's Advent and I love it, but we just don't suffer. And so sometimes we read it and we just, we either turn off our brain and just say, well, this isn't for me. Or sometimes what we do, and I've seen this done as somebody who's grown up in the church, we take these passages of suffering and preachers and teachers use it to beat God's people up and say, you're not suffering because you're not faithful enough. And we use it and sort of just bludgeon Christians with it. And there's clearly an element this morning that we need to hear from this text that at times we don't suffer because we're not bold for Christ. We need to receive that rebuke from the scriptures. But there's also a sense that we have so many opportunities, and many of us in this room today may even be suffering for Christ in legitimate ways, and we need the encouragement of the scriptures. We don't need to sort of scapegoat and say, well, we're not being, you know, a gun's not being pointed at us, so we're not really suffering. No, there are lesser ways that we suffer that are very important, and God can use those things to bring about joy as we own him publicly in the culture. And so when we talk about suffering in the biblical sense, we've mentioned this as we've gone along in 1 Peter, there's four major kinds of suffering, and we're looking at the fourth this morning, but there's general suffering. So we all know we live in a fallen world, and there's things like sickness and illness and war and hurricanes and earthquakes, and we suffer just generally because the world is fallen. It's not put back together in the way that it, the way that it should be, the way that God created it to be yet. There's suffering this, uh, because of our own folly and our own sin, and that's a part of this text this morning. Don't suffer because of your own folly or sin, and many of us, even today, have ways that we're suffering um, or being downtrodden because of things that we've done, and we're just reaping the consequences of those things, our own foolishness. There's also suffering because of the ways that people have sinned against us. Because we live in a fallen world, not only do we sin against God and we recognize that we're sinners, but because we live in community, we're sinned against and some of us bear that this morning, that kind of suffering. And then there's the kind of suffering that Peter's talking about this morning, which is particular Christian suffering, suffering for the name of Christ, suffering for being a Christian. It's called three different things in this passage, and I'm going to use them interchangeably, and we're gonna, I'm going to probably say the word suffering about 8,000 times this morning. There's just no other way around it. When you're preparing a sermon that's this focused, you're like, well, I'd love if I had like 10 different words, and, but I'm just going to say suffering a lot, so sorry. It's called three things, sharing Christ's suffering, so sharing in that in the way Christ suffered, sort of being attached to him in the way that he suffered, 
Um, there's being insulted for the name of Christ, so insults being hurled at you uh, in various ways and degrees for being a Christian. And then they're suffering as a Christian, or suffering for the name of Christ, for being a Christian. So those are the three main kinds of suffering. And these things are everything from being insulted for your Christian beliefs. Maybe some of you have been insulted for believing certain things about Christ, for saying, yeah, I, I read the Bible and I take it literally. I believe, you know, Jesus is who he says he was. I believe that he rose from the dead, a miracle, and I believe these things. And you can be insulted for those things, and we are in our culture. Or perhaps for saying that Jesus is the only way of salvation. He's the only way to be right with God and to be with the Father and to be made new. And in our culture, that's seen as intolerant. So we get insulted for those sorts of beliefs. Or perhaps relational sort of consequences uh, in suffering. Like maybe some of you came to Christ later in life and your group of friends or perhaps your family who didn't like what happened in your life. And they might even see your change in lifestyle as sort of uh, an indictment upon them. And you might suffer consequences and lose friends and even family because of that. All the way down to something that we, often, that we don't experience in our, our culture, but millions of Christians in our world experience today. Physical harm, being killed or being imprisoned, having your family taken away from you for being a Christian. We're grateful we don't have much of any of that in our culture. We praise God that he's protected us in that way. But millions of our brothers and sisters around the world today suffer in that way. And that's what Peter was preparing these, these people for in this text. And I think just to continue introduction, I think it's amazing that this teaching comes from Peter. This is the Apostle Peter. This is uh, one of Jesus' three closest disciples. And you remember uh, at the end of jo the Gospel of John, as they go out from the upper room, and they're, uh, they're, Peter, James, and John are in the garden praying with Jesus, and then Jesus is arrested and taken away. Who is it that denies Jesus? Who is it that says, I don't even know him? I don't want to be associated with him. It's Peter. It's the guy who wrote this stuff to us. He said, I don't even want to know Jesus. I don't want to suffer for him. And so Peter knows what he's talking about. He knows exactly what he's asking us to do, and he knows what it's like to then repent and to go on and die for Christ. You know how Peter died. It's famous in church history. He was crucified under the Roman emperor Nero, and he, and he said, I'm not even worthy to be crucified like Jesus, so I want you to hang me upside down. I want my feet pointing up and my head down. I want you to hang me that way, because he knew the joy set before him to die in the way that Christ died and to suffer. And so I love that this comes from Peter and I love as well that it's the first Sunday of Advent. Um, many of you are, are starting to celebrate Advent, maybe even for the first time, or maybe you grew up with it, but traditionally the first Sunday of Advent is a Sunday that's focused upon the longing and looking and prophetically looking through the Old Testament on what the Messiah was to be like. So we have beautiful passages like what was read in Isaiah 53. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten of God and afflicted. And so the Messiah was to be one who would suffer and the first Sunday of Advent is a beautiful time to meditate on that. And so my prayer as we dive into this passage, as I've meditated and thought about this, is that we would get to see Jesus as our Lord and Savior, first and foremost, who suffered for us. This wouldn't be about us and the guilt of, oh, I'm not suffering, but it would be about looking and seeing Jesus, the one who suffered for us. The gospel of Jesus Christ himself. And, and we tend to think of rejoicing and suffering as these two sort of opposite poles. We have rejoicing over here and we have suffering over here. And they're just different things. But biblically, we're going to see these are not opposite things. Peter holds forth joy in suffering. So I want you to hear that this morning. And there's joy because God shows himself sufficient. He's, he reveals the idols of our hearts as we suffer for him. So as we work through this text, I want you to consider what idols in your heart God is revealing what things are you clinging to because you don't want to cling to God and you don't want to own him and suffer for him? I pray that the Holy Spirit would reveal that to us. 
Um, if you're not there yet in your Bibles, I'd invite you to, to turn in your app or your Bible, or if you don't have a Bible, we have uh, Bibles in the pews that have like six-point font. They're really small, but um, if you're able to read it, um, I invite you to turn. We're going to walk through this text together. Verse 12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. He starts off with the word beloved. You're beloved of God. And so the love of God in Christ wraps this entire passage. You can skip down to our last verse, verse 19. He says, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. God is our faithful creator. He loves us and we're beloved. And so when we suffer, it's because he loves us. It's not an aberration. It's not outside of that. It's a part of his love for us. And then he says, don't be surprised, beloved, when this comes upon you. What does it mean to not be surprised? It, re- it means to be prepared. If, if you're not surprised when something comes upon you, you are prepared for it. You've done certain things to make yourself ready for it. And so Peter's saying, Christians, be prepared to suffer for Jesus. Be prepared. It's a normal and expected part of the Christian life. It's not something when it comes you say, whoa, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. It is what you're signing up for, to suffer for the sake of Christ because he suffered And so for those of us who've lived lives, which I would say is probably most of us, relatively free of hardship, when it comes, we we say things like this, how could it happen to me, God? Why me? How did you let me get cancer? How could you let my spouse die? How could you let me? Lord, I was serving you, and now my neighbor hates me and doesn't want to talk to me. So we, we lash out and we question God. But Peter says, no, expect it and prepare for it. Don't be surprised. And as we look, we're going to look at several ways that we prepare to suffer. I would say this is not even just personally. This is thinking, how will I prepare my children to suffer? I think about my kids, and I think in the culture that we live, they're probably going to be required to suffer for the gospel more than I have and more than my parents and grandparents had to. And their grandchildren are going to be called to suffer probably more. And so we want to look at how do we prepare them and ourselves and our churches to suffer. Three main things on this point. Prepare for it by staying rooted in the Bible and the Scriptures. See, when when we suffer, our theology is revealed. What we believe about God comes out and is tested when we suffer. We can say all we want when we come and we're not suffering and, you know, we're sitting in church and it's nice and we confess things about God and they're not challenged and it's just kind of easy. But when we suffer, it's our true Savior and our theology and what we believe about God is revealed. Is God really enough for this? Is what I believed about him true? Can I trust God? Sometimes when we suffer for him, we say, can I really trust God that he let this happen to me? So the scriptures, we read it and we're steeped and it prepares us to suffer well for him. So the Bible and then prayer. Number two, we we prepare to suffer by prayer. I love, um, often I read and I pray through a prayer from Ephesians 1. If you want to turn there, this is something that I would encourage you to pray as you think about preparing to suffer. We had to pray this, you know, in our redemption communities, over each other, in our homes. Pray this way, that the Holy Spirit would reveal to us the depth of the love of Christ for us. Because that's what prepares us to suffer, to know the, the depth of Christ and who he is. Uh, Ephesians 1, 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, in the eyes of your, that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality, and power, and might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that age which is to come. 
It sounds like a sermon or a doxology, but it's a prayer that God's people, that we would know deep in our hearts the love of God poured out to us as Jesus is crucified and risen again and made known to us by the Holy Spirit. See, that's, that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit teaches us about Jesus as he indwells us. He enlivens our hearts to understand the depth of who he is. And as we understand that, we can suffer better because of that, and so we should pray for it. And third, we prepare to suffer, so we're not surprised when it comes through being in community. Imagine what your RC would like. Those of you who are involved or know what that is, we have communities that meet throughout the week, throughout the city, um, of people that gather, of Christians from this church, and we gather for fellowship, and we do mission together, and we eat, and we talk about the scriptures, and we do life together. Imagine what your RC would look like if you showed up, you know, whenever you meet, once a week, a couple times a month, and you showed up having just suffered brutally for Christ that week. Imagine how it would just change the whole dynamic of your group if you show up and somebody had just been maybe beaten for Christ or had lost their job because they claimed Christ or their family rejected them because of Christ. It just, it changes, the community changes that whole dynamic. And so a lot of our, a lot of times we just, community seems very trite, but suffering can refine even community and cause us to be in deeper relationship with one another. And additionally, we shouldn't be surprised that we suffer because Jesus suffered. Jesus' whole life was characterized by suffering. Prophetically, from Isaiah 13, the, the, the Savior would be one who suffered for his people. He would be lowly. He would be trampled upon and trodden upon, and he would sacrifice himself. And so I, th I think a lot of times we're just, we, do, we just miss that. We're sort of triumphalistic and think, well, if we're following God, it just should be great, right? We just get this idea in the church that if we can just, can, it's like a big misunderstanding, right? Like, we just, we haven't presented ourselves well enough. We haven't done our services well enough. We haven't had nice enough decorations. The music has been really horrible. The preaching's been bad. And we just, we, if we could just get that stuff right, everybody would just love Jesus, right? They would just want to flock to the church and get saved and sign up. And it's just not how it works. I mean, did you know that some of the doctrines that we believe are really ultra unpopular in our culture? Did you, did you know that? Um, I mean, I, this sort of rhetorical question, right? Um, I mean, some things that we believe as distinctives at Redemption Church are pretty unpopular. Um, things like complementarianism, um, that we believe man, male and, we, and female were created co-equal heirs of grace before God, and yet differing roles and responsibilities in the family and in the church. Did you know that that's super unpopular? Some, pe some of you may have even been insulted and suffered for that. What about views of sexuality or human life or ethics? We, our doctrine is not popular. So are we going to hold to it? Are we going to be surprised when people mock us and insult us for those things? And Peter says here in particular, don't be surprised at what? The fiery trial. This is something very particular. And the word fiery is burning, surprisingly enough. Uh, yeah, it's fire. Um, Peter's preparing these particular Christians for something that we know from history was a very, very intense and brutal period of persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero. He's a pretty famous guy. You've probably heard about him. As I was preparing and working through this, I watched a couple of documentaries on Nero, and uh, I don't really recommend doing that unless you're really um, pretty tough, because it, there's some pretty bad, he was a really, really horrible guy, and um, historically, the, the persecution that came upon these Christians, probably a lot of the people that Peter's writing to, was in the form of being burned. I mean, Nero would literally hang Christians on a pole in his courtyard, and he would light them on fire so that they had light for their parties in their, in their courtyard. I mean, it's... Peter's preparing them for some real, legit suffering as he's writing these things, a fiery trial. And what's the reason for the suffering? See, that's often when we suffer, we're saying, Lord, why? He gives it to us right here. It comes upon you in verse 12, why? To test you. 
So don't be surprised. God loves you, and he's testing you. How does, how does suffering test us? Well, in a couple of different ways. It tests our faith. It tastes, tests its nature and its purity, and it reveals the object of our worship. Who do you turn to when you suffer? What sorts of, where do you go? What sorts of things do you, do you turn to to sort of ease your pain? And so those who suffer for being a Christian are actually being tested by God, and there's some good comfort in that. This is not, uh, God's not standing away saying, oh, I can't do anything about it. No, he's your father, and you're suffering by his good pleasure. It's nothing accidental or strange, but God is actually purifying you so that you can glorify him more because you're his child. This is, if you remember back in chapter 1, Peter's been talking about this the whole time. He says in chapter 1, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that what? The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is so beautiful. Your faith is being tested, it's purified, and it results in praise and glory at Jesus Christ and his work, not your own work, but the work of Jesus. And so you're beloved, and when you suffer, you suffer as one beloved by God, and you can know that God's purifying you. God has your good in mind, he has your purity, and he has beauty in mind. Think about, uh, I don't, we've, some of you may have grown up in the church, and you sang a pretty cheesy song called Refiner's Fire. Does anybody remember that song? Refiner's fire. It's, yeah, I remember singing it in youth group and just being like, man, this is horrible. <laughs> but it's, a, it's based on a passage from Malachi 3 that's talking about this exact thing. It's talking about, and I'm going to read it, the way that God subjects his people to suffering to refine them. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? He is God in judgment. For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He's like a silversmith. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And what will happen? He says, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. God's like a silversmith. He's like a, when a silversmith takes silver and he refines it, he puts it in a, in, he creates it in a molten state. He puts it above fire and it becomes molten. And all of the impurities are separated and he, he rakes those out and he throws them to the side. And you have pure and beautiful silver that is the most pure that it could possibly be. But it has to go through fire to be pure. And so that's what God's doing. God is like a refiner who is putting us through a fire so that we would be more pure before him. Verses 13 and 14, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Rejoice. This is sort of the crux of the passage this morning. If you, if you don't hear anything else, I pray that you would just it would be impressed upon you, this call to rejoice or to take joy in the Lord through suffering. It's, it's the big idea here. What is it to rejoice? And how do we know true joy or rejoicing from false joy and false rejoicing? The definition of rejoicing is to delight or to be glad. Some of you, some of us in this room are, are more wired to be rejoicing. Some of us are more somber and grave people, and we're not necessarily rejoicing all the time, or we don't, you know, don't smile. If you're like me, you don't smile for photos. You're just sort of, you're just doing what you're doing. You're not naturally a real rejoicing kind of a person. But, you know, don't get scared. I'm, I'm happy. I'm okay. <laughs> but, but delight and joy can be really elusive. And sometimes the church paints this picture of the Christian life. Like, you come to Jesus and, bro, it is going to be awesome. It's just going to, you're going to be stoked all the time for God. It's just going to be amazing. And you're just, ministry is just happening. And it's just, it's just beautiful. And you're just going to be rejoicing and just worshiping all the time. We're just going to be tambourines and like flags. And it's just going to be, whoa, just awesome. 
and we just we paint this picture of just like your best life now. It's just like just like total heresy. But but Peter says, no, I want you to rejoice in suffering. He says, there's profound joy for you, yes, in Christ, but how does it come about through suffering? As you suffer in the way that Christ did, there's joy and delight and worship, yes, but it's in suffering. It's in other things too, but in this passage, it's, it, this is how God brings it about. I don't want you to think that if you're not suffering, you can't have a joyful life. Yes, you can. But, but Peter's saying this is how God creates that deep yearning for him inside of you as you suffer. And so I think it's a command. It's one of two imperatives in this passage. He's saying rejoice. It's, it's given as, a, as an instruction. You need to rejoice. But I think, given the context, we need to look at it as more of an invitation for the joy that God has for us. He's saying, come, be willing to suffer. God has great and profound and lasting joy and delight for you as you suffer. Yeah, it's a command, but it's, it's much easier to invite someone to the goodness of God and say, look, suffer because there's joy than to just command you need to rejoice right now. For most of us, our circumstances are what dictates our joy. We're, we're happy when things are going well. When we look at our Wells Fargo account and the, the balance is high, we're like, okay, I can be joyful today. Or you check your 401k and your investments and it's up and you are really stoked and you're rejoicing and happy. When something goes wrong then, something bad happens in our life or you're in, uh, you have conflict with your spouse or your kids are running around the house trying to kill you with a knife, Sometimes it feels like uh, at our house with lots of kids, they don't hold knives, but if sometimes it feels like it's going bad, you say, I'm, I can't rejoice, this is just horrible. And so our circumstances dictate to us whether or not we have joy. Do you know what this is called? It's called idolatry. To have something other than Christ dictate to us our joy as a Christian is to have an idol. It's to make that thing or that person an idol that you're worshiping. You're letting it dictate your joy to you and not Jesus, who really can give you joy. See, that is one of the beautiful things about persecution is that it reveals all of those other things you turn to really can't do anything. The scriptures would call them gods, these sorts of gods that we amass around ourselves. Um, they have eyes, but they can't see, and they have ears, but they can't hear. They're not real. They cannot help you. So it's called idolatry, and they never yield true joy. Money, pleasure, sex, you know, amassing goods, security, these things cannot bring true and lasting joy, and every one of us knows this. We all know it, and yet we pursue those things as though they could bring us joy because we don't want to suffer. And I think if one of the things I've thought about over the years about Jesus, just how unique he was, and I've always wondered what would it have been like to just walk with Jesus and just know him, you know, as a, as a friend. Um, we know him as a friend. We pray to him. We have intimacy. But to have walked with him as the disciples did and, you know, have meals with him, I think one of the things that would have been the most just almost disconcerting about Jesus was his joy. I think if you could have seen, uh, seen the God-man in full joy before the Father, just, just loving the Father with all of his heart, I think it would have been just, you would, we wouldn't know what to do with it. I mean, have you ever met somebody that you would consider a really joyful person? I don't mean like bubbly happy, I mean joy. I mean gut level, like just joy in the Lord. I've met maybe a couple of people in my life that I would consider are truly rejoicing, joyful, worshipful individuals where their circumstances are irrelevant to their joy, and it is, it's convicting and it's disconcerting. And it reveals how much our joy is just so dependent upon our circumstances. And it says in Hebrews 12, why did Jesus die on the cross? A lot of times we think, well, Jesus died because he loved me, because he wanted to obey the Father, and those are true things. He died because he loves his people, and he died because he wanted to do whatever the Father set before him. But Hebrews 12 says something very specific about Jesus and his motivation. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. 
So God placed joy in front of Jesus and rejoicing and worship and said, my son, I want you to suffer and die for my people. And Jesus did it for the joy that was set before him. It's just so backwards in the way we think of joy. Joy motivates us to sort of be lighthearted and happy, right? No, joy can motivate us to suffer and die. So how does this work? Why is there joy in suffering for Jesus? Four main reasons. We rejoice and we worship in suffering because persecution reveals the object of our worship. When you're faced with, the consequence, with consequences for being a Christian, have you, have you ever faced a consequence for being a Christian? I imagine in various ways many of us have faced some sort of repercussion in one degree or another for that. When you're faced with that consequence, you really have two options. You can sort of hide that fact that you're a Christian. You can shut up. You can just sort of ignore it and not want to get into it, which a lot of us do. We're just like, it's just a rat's nest. I don't want to go there. Or we can own Christ. We can remain faithful to Jesus, and we can face whatever may come. There's two options. And so suffering reveals, it's, it's a blessing, and we can rejoice in it because it's an opportunity to reveal what we really worship. It's the way God works on our heart and peels away our, our deception to show what is your real God. So if, if we worship money, big one in our culture, I would say a lot of us in this room, our functional Savior is money. We might claim to be a Christian, might say we follow Christ, but really money is our Savior. It just is. We just we need to own that sin. And so if, if we worship money and our faith costs something, think of Jesus. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? He wants to follow Jesus, and Jesus says to him, okay, you need to go, and I want you to liquidate all of your assets. I want you to sell everything that you have, and then what? Then you can come and follow me. Um, now, that, does that mean that that is a bar to become a Christian? Do you guys all need to say, did, when you became a Christian, did you sell all your assets? No. But what did Jesus know about this man? He knew this man's heart. He knew that this man did not want to worship him. He wanted to add Jesus on as sort of an appendage to his life, but still worship money. And Jesus said, no, there will be a consequence if you really want to follow me. And for this man, it was he needed to sell everything. He needed to be unbondaged from his idol. If we worship our status, for men, this is a big one, our status at work, the way that we are viewed sort of with respect and honor and prestige. And God calls us men to make a decision that's in line with him, that's, that's an ethical decision, or to go against a decision maybe to like cook the books for your company, or to steal or to embezzle money, or to sort of lie and misrepresent facts. And there's repercussions from that, and we, and we follow our fear of man rather than God. We show where our heart is. And we can rejoice in that suffering because it reveals it. There it is. You can see it. And then God can begin to work there. We also rejoice, number two, because suffering peels away lesser joys. It shows that the things we take joy in are, are lesser. And so when we suffer, we turn to God for deliverance. Where do you go when you suffer? Something we need to evaluate. When, when you suffer maybe, and suffer for the Lord, say, um, in any of these ways that we've talked about, you find that there's repercussions for your faith. What sorts of things do you go to? Do you go to entertainment or perhaps uh, sex or you go to another person primarily? Um, those things reveal that you, have, you, take a thing, you take joy in lesser things. And these things, we turn to suffering, God calls them gods who can't save. Those things can't save you. And so rejoice when you suffer for Jesus because he's showing you that your lesser gods have no joy for you, but he has true joy for you. Number three, rejoice because Christian suffering reveals the glory of Christ. This is mentioned in two different ways in our passage. In verse 14, it says, because the spirit of, the, uh, spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. <clears throat> And, um, and you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So, so suffering reveals in some mysterious way the glory of Christ. What is glory? The glory of God in the Bible is spoken of as a thing of weight. It's heavy. There's mass to it. I almost, 
it's sort of a cheesy example, but bear with me. Like if you've been to the dentist and you put the lead vest on and it, do you kind of like how that feels when that vest is on? It's like kind of heavy and it's kind of like the, it's kind of like what God's presence in his glory upon you is like. It's like a weighty thing, but it's good. You remember the, the story of Moses. Moses said, God, I want to see your glory. He's on the mountain. And what does God say? God says, well, if, if you see my glory, if you see me, you're going to die. It's, you're just going to be, you're going to burn up. And so what he does is he places Moses in a crack in the rock in the mountain, sort of says, go in here, I'm going to shove you in here. And he shows him just the train of his robe, it says, God passed, God the Father in some way passes by. We know from the scriptures God is spirit, and yet in some way God manifested his glory in massive amounts of light to Moses. And Moses saw just a shred of his glory, and it was just the radiance and the holiness of God, just the grandeur and just pure piercing light and holiness of the Lord. And in some amazing way, when we suffer, that radiance of God that was manifest in Jesus on the earth, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And the gloriousness of Jesus is revealed through us as we suffer for him. So Peter says in verses 13 and 14, if you share Christ's suffering, the glory of Christ is revealed. And what? The spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of the glory of God. So I can't really think of a way that Peter could sort of give any more significance to suffering? What else could he say that would make this be any heavier for God's people? The spirit of the glory of God rests upon you when you suffer. It's huge. It's it's just utterly amazing that the Holy Spirit is with us, and he's in us, and he's upon us when we suffer. We should love this about the Holy Spirit. We should just revel in the fact that God sends the Holy Spirit with us, and so when we suffer for him, we're not alone in that. The Holy Spirit is with us and working in us, and God is changing us, and we have his presence. We never suffer alone. And so the worst suffering that we have, if you were to go home today and someone were to kill you and, make, and just torture you, and you would suffer greatly before their hands and die for the name of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is with you in that. And that's the worst that this life could possibly offer, and beyond that, you're with Jesus. There's such hope in that. Such hope if you're suffering for Christ right now. Hope that God's glory is being revealed in you. It's something we just have to have faith in. You may not see it, but it's a truth. It's something promised here. Revel in it. And fourth, reasons to rejoice. Rejoice because Christian suffering is an expression of the love of God for you. I heard it said recently that if you don't want to suffer, you don't want God. If you don't want to suffer for the sake of Jesus, if you want to avoid that, you really don't love or want God's work in your life. You don't want it. It's very revealing. If you want to hide that you're a Christian, sort of just go along with the flow of worldliness and just the parade of foolishness all around and not own Jesus Christ and say, I am his, then you don't really want God. You don't want what God has for you. Because God is not about our comfort. He's about our joy. God doesn't primarily have in view, how can I make my people comfortable? He has no, how can I show them that I'm worthy of rejoicing and of their worship and of just casting away everything for me how can i show them that i'm worthy and he shows us so according to to this text if we avoid suffering if if we're like peter who wanted to avoid suffering and deny jesus we don't really want god's presence at work in our life because that's how god gives it to us many many times is through suffering we want god's blessing and presence right i mean we want that we want the glory of god these things that he promised you want the spirit of the glory of god resting upon you that's good that's um that's really, really, really good. And you want that. You want joy and gladness, right? Well, God has these things in store for us as we're willing to suffer for him. Verse 13, this, we're going to talk a little bit about, okay, what is the nature of Christ's suffering? We looked at the idea of rejoicing and suffering, but what kind of suffering are we talking about? And Peter is going to contrast Christian suffering and 
what would be sinful suffering, saying, suffer this way and don't suffer this way. So in verse 13, he says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Insofar. So as far as you're sharing Christ's sufferings, I want you to rejoice in that kind of suffering. Well, what is that? What is the name? How did Christ suffer? What is this distinction? So, so Christian suffering starts with a very fundamental belief that God suffered in the flesh for us. It starts with believing that Jesus died as a sinless man on our behalf, and he suffered for us. We, we own that. That's, that is applied to our account, that he suffered and we didn't have to. It's just the basic gospel. And so it starts with that belief that God is not unscathed by suffering. Do you sometimes think of God as kind of sterile and just away in like a white room, and there's like, he's just got white gloves, and there's like pumps of Purell like all over the wall, and he's just like clean, and like just, God's just unscathed. I think sometimes we think of God as just being detached in that way. But the gospel says, no, God entered into human suffering. God t- added humanity to his divinity. That's how we formulated it. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and he added humanity to his divinity, and he came down, and he was born in a manger to suffer. He was born a suffering death. He lived a life of suffering. And so God's not just detached and unscathed. Is that your view of God? When we suffer, our view of God can be challenged. Is that your view of God? That yes, Jesus, you also suffered. It can be a great, a great comfort. It's really, it's really popular in our culture today to kind of blame God for all of the suffering and evil that we find around us. And people just, you know, even just people that don't even believe in God, just total flat atheists will say, I can't believe in God because he lets all the suffering and all of the evil in the world, sort of the problem of evil. And we get caught up, you know, thinking and talking about it. And we don't even believe there's a God, but, um, but we want to blame him for everything and all the suffering and the problems in my life. But the gospel is, is not that. The gospel is not that God just dumps a bunch of suffering on the earth. The gospel is that God created the world good. He created everything that is, and he said it's very good and it's perfect and there is no sin. And we fell into sin. We rejected God. We decided that we didn't want to follow him. And then God starts the process of redemption right away, right from Genesis, with the promise that the seed would come, the seed of the woman who is to be Jesus. So from the very beginning, that's the whole, the whole point of the story of the gospel is that God would enter into human suffering. It should be our view of God when we think of him. And Peter says that we can share Christ's sufferings. So what are they? What ways did Jesus suffer? He suffered for the truth of God's word. He suffered because he was a preacher of the word. Jesus was, among other things, a rabbi, and he would go to the synagogue and he would preach God's word. And it says several times in the scriptures that when he would preach, people would say, I've never heard the scriptures open in that way before. He, he made it come alive for them. And Jesus, for speaking biblical truth or the word of God, often suffered at the hands of religious people, believe it or not. Sometimes religious people, Pharisees, who don't really love God but want that title of Pharisee, will, will bring the most persecution on this front. Because they have their own words, not the word of God. And they want to hold you to those things and not the word of God. And God's word is a challenge. Jesus also suffered for a life of true holiness. Think of um, Jesus suffering, uh, Jesus healing on the Sabbath day, something he, he suffered greatly for. They accused him and said, this is just horrible that you would break the Sabbath. But that was true holiness. He says, we can't make somebody well on the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Think of Jesus eating with sinners. That was a part of the holiness of his lifestyle, that he was like the Father and that he loved sinners. And he was mocked and he was persecuted for that. So he suffered for God's word and for holiness. What about for repentance, for calling sinners to repentance? Jesus powerfully called sinners to repent of sin. 
Remember, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. I mean, it's like you read that passage and you're just, you cannot believe that the guy that you worship said all of that stuff to these people. And he suffered because of that. And culminating in, the, in Christ's redemptive suffering, the fact that he suffered and he died on the cross for, in our place for our sin. And how did he suffer? He suffered often quietly. You remember Jesus before, uh, before the high priest, the high priest was asking him, interrogating him, and Jesus was often just silent. He wasn't trying to sort of up the ante and like be antagonistic, which sometimes we do. We're going to look at ways that we suffer in ways that are just stupid. Jesus didn't do that. He was just quiet. He was silent before his shearers, which is the prophecy of him in Isaiah 53. So, so Jesus suffered. And so in verses 15 and 16, as we move to that, Peter's saying, we need to evaluate our suffering. When we suffer, we need to look at it. Verse 15, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. It's kind of an interesting little group of things. Murderer, thief, evildoer, and then meddler. I didn't, yeah, you don't usually think of meddler as like being the same as murder, like He's on death row for being a meddler. Like, it's just, it's a little different. But what does it mean? Does it seem, you read this on a cursory reading, and it just seems really obvious. Like, okay, Peter just wants to get that out of the way, right? Not as a murderer or a, or a thief. But what, he's, what is he talking about? He's saying you need to evaluate your suffering. Why are you suffering? What, what led to this? If you find yourself in that position of being persecuted and having trouble for, for your action, why did that come about? And a couple things on this. I actually think, in our day, we actually failed to suffer in many ways that we legitimately could. Uh, we were talking about this in our RC this week. We're going through uh, Tim Chester's book, You Can Change, and he has a section about ways that we minimize our sin and we sort of justify it away. And one of the th- points that came up um, from one of the gentlemen in our group is that we often fail to suffer for Christ. So we're in a situation where it's just would be awkward, and, but you have a perfect opportunity to just speak conversantly about Jesus, just normal, real, like just like anybody else would talk about what they believe, and we just don't do it because we look at it as like a can of worms that we don't want to open. And there's just there's a lot of legitimate ways that we could suffer for Christ and have joy that we don't. But sometimes, and Peter's picking up on this here, we fail to suffer or we suffer because what is really just our own folly. It's our own foolishness or our own sin. We make trouble for ourselves that aren't the sufferings of Christ. We may want to think they are, but it's just because we're being dumb. An extreme example, I mean, it's sometimes extreme examples are helpful because you can have a laugh about them. Sometimes they're not helpful because you just scapegoat your own sin with them. Uh, an extreme example in our day of, uh, of unbiblical suffering would be like Westboro Baptist Church. You know, these guys are like, their, their ministry is like a ministry of God hates homosexuals. That's like, that's what they do. That's their, like we have um, gospel-centered outward focus is like our tagline. There's is God hates whatever. I mean, there's like, you go, I wouldn't recommend going on their website, but if you do, it's like, it is horrible. It's like that's, that's what they're doing. They're, they have a robust ministry of not showing the love of Christ. That's, like, that's what they do. But I think in their minds, they think well, we're suffering and people mock us and we're suffering for the cause of Christ, right? Because we're standing for truth. We're being hardcore, you know, for our faith and for the Bible, for the scriptures. We're doing it. I, know, I think they legitimately believe that's what's happening. And they're just being hardcore. But is that the way Jesus fought against the powers of the devil and of sin in the world? Do you think Jesus would have shown up to, like, a picketing line in front of a funeral? I just, I don't think that, I don't think that's the way of Jesus. So these things that Peter mentions here are actually crimes that Christians were being accused of. We know from historical accounts. And so Peter is exhorting his Christians to be above reproach. It's in line even with earlier in chapter 4 when he exhorts us to sort of live a life of sobriety and of holiness so that you're set apart, so that you can't be accused, so that you're above reproach in this godless culture. 
We know um, in the burning of Rome, the story of the, the great burning of Rome, that actually Christians were the ones who were scapegoated for that. So Emperor Nero had been sort of blamed for not doing anything. There's the, you know, he's playing his violin while Rome was burning. And what ended up happening is he sort of scapegoated the Christians, and it was really the first time that the doors were just open to full persecution upon God's people. And they were accused of, of crimes. They were accused of being people who were against society, and they were persecuted unjustly for that. However, sometimes Christians wrongfully sin in the name of fighting for righteousness, and we're not, we don't do this as extreme as Westboro Baptist Church, I hope, but sometimes we're just short-sighted. Have you ever caught yourself, you know, really with a zeal for evangelism? You just want to, like, go out and you want to tell this person, but you sort of cross the line where you're, you're not really evangelizing them. You're just, like, punching them in the face. You're, like, like, beating them with your Bible. I think that's part of this. I think it's we can sin in the name of zeal. I've, a, a pastor that I like uses the term the reformed cage stage for, like, young men who learn reformed theology, and they come into these doctrines that are really beautiful and heavy about God's sovereignty, but instead of applying those things with love, they need to be put in a cage because what they want to do is basically beat everybody up with them. Uh, young men, in particular, I think need to grapple with that. Are you using your theology to sort of beat people up, but you think you're really doing good for God, and then when you suffer, people want to argue, for, argue with you, you get even more excited? Yeah, that's, that's what God's talking about, right? No, it's really not, actually. Perhaps even the zealot movement, um, that was a historical movement of Jews in that day, that were basically like a guerrilla warfare against the Roman Empire. And it's been conjectured that there were Christians who were engaging in that same sort of thing, sort of like, we need to take up arms and fight against the emperor with arms, and we need to go out and we need to murder, and we need to steal, we need to pillage in the name of Christ so that we can sort of fight off this evil emperor Nero. And Peter's saying, no, that's not the way to suffer for Jesus. It's not how Jesus suffered. Jesus suffered not leading an army to war with swords in a battle, but he suffered by giving himself up on a cross. So examine your suffering. He says, but if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. This is the, the third designation in this passage of the way that we suffer as a Christian. The name Christian was actually a derogatory term. It's, many of you probably have heard this, but it means little Christ. It was something that was hurled at Christians basically saying, you guys are, you're just little Christs. It was just like a, it was derogatory and defamatory. It was like an insult basically. And the Christian said, you know what? I think let's just own that. Let's just, yeah, we'll, be, we'll associate with Christ. You can put that on us. So we should glory in wearing the name of Christ. Do you, do you glory in that? Do you love being called a Christian? I think, you know, there's been a movement away for some Christians of like, we don't like that term because it's sort of more of a marketing category. It's like you go to the store and there's like all the good literature and good music and then there's like the Christian section and that's where all the bad literature and bad music are, and, <laughs> which is kind of true, but we think we've, we've kind of moved away from it because like, well, I don't want them to think I'm that, right? But it, what does it really mean? It means you're of Christ. It means you're a little Christ. I think we just need to own it. Uh, we, need to, we need to not be ashamed of it. And not be ashamed of our brethren either. Yeah, some of, our, some of us, me and you and our brethren, Christians do dumb stuff. And we need to just, not only do we not be afraid to own Christ, but we own our brethren. Yes, we are messed up, but we're a family. We're together in this. Have you ever been ashamed of Jesus or embarrassed of Jesus? I think especially like kids who grow up in the church, I don't know, how many of you grew up in the church had this experience? Have these, have these moments where, like, you know, your family's praying at, like, Garcia's, and you're just like, oh, my gosh, everybody is looking at me. Like, you just get so embarrassed. Your dad's praying really loud, and, like, you're just like, oh, no. You have these moments of being embarrassed, and then you realize, I'm being embarrassed of Christ. Like, it's okay, you know, that, we're, that we pray in public. It's okay that if people know that we love Jesus. 
And there's, there's dumb ways to bring attention to yourself. And, you know, I, I remember a particular guy growing up who loved this sort of notion of being known and bold for Christ. And so he would pray, like, so loud, no matter where he was at. I mean, he was like Sean Myers reading the, the text on Thanksgiving service, but, like, in the middle of Taco Bell, like, praying for his tacos. Like, Jesus, thank you for these tacos. You know, everybody's, like, looking over at him. I, I don't think, I really don't think that's what he's talking about here, here either. So we need, to be, we need to be okay owning Jesus. Don't be ashamed to be linked with him, to be linked with beliefs about him that are unpopular. As we close, I want to look just quickly at the last few verses of this. Um, verses 17 and 19 are really focused on the idea that God is with you and for you as you suffer for his sake. I'm going to read them. Verse 17, for it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Judgment here comes to purify God's people, and he calls them the household of God. I love that. There's so much comfort in that. Many of us have households. I I have a household. I have a wife, and I have four children, and they're my household, and we live in a house, and I love them. They're They're my people. I sacrifice for them. I provide for them. I protect them, and I love them deeply. I love my wife and my kids so much, and that's the imagery here. We are the household of God. You're you're one of God's kids. You're, You're his son or his daughter, and he loves you like a good dad, and so when judgment comes, God is not against us. He's for us. He loves us. We're his kids, and we can just revel in that and take comfort in that. It's the will of God, he says in verse 19, that we suffer. Again, not an aberration, but part of God's plan for us. And he says, then what is the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? He asks a rhetorical question. And then again in 18, if the righteous is scarcely saved through judgment, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? For those who don't obey the gospel. This is why our belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so absolutely critical. It is the fact of history that separates suffering from suffering. See, if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, when he suffered and he died, he died. He's done for. If Jesus is still in the grave, the Apostle Paul says our faith is in vain. We should close shop and just go home because it's all meaningless. Jesus was at best a martyr who preached some good things but was but basically lost. He lost the battle, and suffering and sin and death won. And so all suffering is really of the same nature in that case. But we can only rejoice in suffering as a Christian because Jesus is alive. We need to, every Sunday as we come to communion, it's an amazing time to be reminded of the fact Jesus not only died, but he is alive. And he has promised by the Holy Spirit that he is here with us spiritually through the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. He is alive so even today as you come to the table, I just I'd invite you to remember that. It's not just remembering his death. It is. But if it was only remembering his death, then we should stop doing it. But it's not just his death. It's his resurrection. It's the fact that death has no sting anymore because Jesus is alive. So our joy is testimony to the fact that death's lost its sting in Jesus. He suffered, yes, but he lives. I want to close with two things from verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Who or what is your soul entrusted to? That's one of the calls of this when we talk about the idolatry of our hearts being revealed in suffering. Who is at the deepest level of your soul or what is at the deepest level of your soul your heart entrusted to? 
We entrust our souls to so many other things that I don't even think we see or want to think about. And those things, as we've seen so clearly, cannot save us. And so God's calling us back to him as his children. It's so beautiful. It's the same word. You remember Jesus on the cross, Father, as, as he gave up his spirit. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. He cried out to God in the same way. He committed himself because of the joy set before him into the hands of God as he died for him on the cross. And second, in closing, Satan seeks to decreate us through suffering. Remember the, the story of Job. Satan comes. It's actually interesting because God actually comes to Satan. God actually says, you see Job. I was reading that, and it kind of struck me that God's actually the one that initiates that. But what does Satan say? Satan says, if you take away, God, all of that stuff and the blessing that you've given to Job, he's going to curse you to your face. Satan is bold enough to say that into the face of God. If you take away the blessing you've given this guy and he has to suffer for you, he's going to curse you and want to die. So Satan came to test him and he sought to persecute Job. And what did he seek to happen through that? He sought the destruction of Job's faith. He sought to, for that suffering to not result in rejoicing and joy at God the Father and his provision and just the joy found in who he is. No, he sought to destroy the faith of Job. And he seeks to turn our suffering for Christ into an occasion for us to, to deny Jesus, to be like Peter and say, I don't know him. I don't even want to be associated with him. That's what Satan seeks in our suffering. But it says here, God is our faithful creator. Not only has he created us from our mother's womb and knit us together, there, but he recreates us through the gospel. And he continuously recreates us as we die to self and as we determine by his spirit and by his grace we're going to live for him. In closing, listen to these words from Philippians 3. This, is, uh, this would be my prayer for us this week as this text works its way into the soil of our hearts. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love that you suffered for us. We love that you know what we go through that you're a good high priest because of that. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would reveal your glory in us, that we would know your presence in suffering and that you would give us boldness to be willing to suffer for you and wisdom to know how and when to do that rightly. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.